Investable Universe is about thematic topics in real assets investing. This is what we mean by the global market of things, real estate, infrastructure, land, energy, and other commodities that have historically been viewed as boring old income investments. But take a look at the shifts underway in these asset classes, from industry disruptors to new investors to emerging markets to geopolitics, and you'll find these assets are anything but dull. We'll talk about private equity, venture capital, corporate VC, sovereign wealth funds, listed markets, crazy startups, some old guard investment firms, some maverick entrepreneurs, and some paradigm-changing technologies. One thing is certain, no corner of the global market of things will be left untouched by the changes happening right now, and that's what we'll be talking about on this podcast. It's all part of our expanding investable universe, and maybe it'll be part of yours too. Returning to one of our favorite topics today, actually a combo of several of our favorite topics, disruptive technologies in real assets investing, the future of farming and land management, unconventional entrepreneurs, and venture capital opportunities. One company, Harvest Returns, is an online agriculture finance marketplace in this space, launched in 2016. The company is headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas, and has a platform designed specifically for investing in production, farming, and agribusiness. Harvest Returns is disrupting traditional agriculture finance models by providing producers and ag entrepreneurs access to streamlined, flexible sources of capital while curating attractive, low-risk opportunities in an asset class that has previously been inaccessible to individual investors. In June of this year, Harvest Returns reached a key milestone of $5 million in global private placement farming opportunities and helping grass-fed cattle and sheep producers alone to raise $2.5 million while also funding vertical farms and other specialty growers in the United States and foreign markets. Since its inception, the firm has distributed over $600,000 in returns to platform investors. What's more, this company is owned by United States servicemen. The company's founder and CEO, Chris Raleigh, also serves as a captain in the U.S. Navy Reserve. His partner, Harvest Returns COO, Austin Manis, was a U.S. Army officer of 10 years. Chris Raleigh, thank you for joining me on Investable Universe today. Thanks, Rebecca. Glad to be here. So Harvest Returns, now it's not just a fractional farmland ownership platform. Let's talk about your business model and your offerings. Great. Yeah. So what we do is we we are approached by farmers and agribusiness entrepreneurs who want to raise capital to either start a new operation or expand their existing operation. In some cases, we're helping with uh, subsequent sort of funding rounds as well. And we help those, uh, we pull together investors on our platform and we invest in those operating companies. So we're we're actually investing in, in the business themselves and the farmers and the entrepreneurs themselves rather than just purchasing land as, as some other models. So where are your listings predominantly based? You're a Fort Worth, Texas-based company, but are you are you centered around Texas or, or talk a little about that? We've we've done listings all over the country, California, New York, Georgia, Kansas, all over the place. And we've done a couple of out of out of country as well. So do you feature farmland listings that are based around a specific commodity theme or a specific cash crop theme? How does that work? So essentially, we're not doing the one. I'll start with a negative to that question. We don't do row crops for the most part. We don't do sort of commodity-based agriculture. We're we're more into the specialty type of of higher value uh, crops and, and production methods. So uh, we have a few different verticals. One of those verticals is grass-fed livestock. We really like it's a, it's sort of a premium product that that consumers are willing to pay more for, and that brings more money to uh, to the sponsors, and it's a less volatile commodity. So from a risk adjusted perspective. It's a little bit safer investment. We also like indoor agriculture, also called control environment agriculture. And that's 
you know, you're seeing more and more of that around the country as, as people are looking to, um, you know, sort of decentralize agriculture and grow closer to the consumer. And then I'd say the third is, is what, um, you know, we just very specialty. That's kind of our third um, vertical where we've done cocoa, we've done bamboo, we've done a lot of it, sort of interesting uh, niche sort of crops. So what is the minimum investment size for someone who wants to invest on your platform and how long are they? I mean, you know, land is a long-term investment, <laughs> really long. <laughs> it is. You know, that's one of the ways we, well, maybe two of the ways we differentiate ourselves. One is our investment size um, ranges, minimum investment size ranges from $5,000 to $25,000, uh, depending on the offering. And, and um, we're also differentiated in that our because we're investing in, in operating companies, not necessarily just acquiring and operating land, we are um, looking for we, these investments or structures to so their shorter term. So the shortest term investment we've ever done is a debt. Um, and that was a, a four month, uh, just a note, a collateralized cattle note. And the longest we've done, um, you know, is is at our 10 year, basically our opportunity zone. And that's because that, that specific, that fund has some specific requirements for duration of holdings. So I know that a theme that many people are familiar with is is this kind of demographic shift in farmland ownership. Sort of the long-term farmers are retiring, getting older, their heirs or their kids may or may not want to continue working the family farm. They may want to liquidate, you know, look at some other opportunity. Or working farmers may just want to you know, generate some working capital and invest in things like smart, you know, precision farming technologies, et cetera. So what percentage of the U.S. agriculture market do you think is going to be monetized or financed in this kind of unconventional way? I can't throw a number out because I'm not, not sure, but I, I will say that number, we, we see it uh, is going to increase. And you, you do see... You know, several trends in farming. The average age of a farmer, the, the statistic that's kind of thrown around is, is, is 58 years. We've been fortunate to work with a wide variety of demographics and farmers. Everything from, I, I think, our 23-year-old bamboo farmer, who's probably our youngest, to some older, experienced, I'll say, entrepreneurs who have put together, um, you know, have, have kind of distinguished records in both farming and other businesses. And the land transfer is interesting because you got a lot of absentee owners, and many of those are retired farmers, and somebody else is operating the farms. We work with people like that, but we also work with people who are you know, want to acquire their own land, acquire their own company, or or expand their own company and hold on to their land. And we we you know got some multi generational farmers and other other interesting that we we working with third fourth generation farmers who were grew up on grain farms and now are doing hydroponics. So um, you definitely see that shift. So let's talk a little about the history of the company. I mean, you've been a, a longtime farmland and, and ag investor even prior to starting the company, as I understand it. Can you talk about how you were inspired to make a, a business of this? Yeah. So my background is varied. You mentioned my military background. I uh, spent a lot of time traveling around the world and, and just seeing how other people live and uh, less fortunate than we are where they're dependent on you know, growing their own food or, or acquiring their food locally, whether it's in a local market, farmers cooperative, that sort of thing. And that's something that you know, we really don't have that much here. Or most Americans sort of take our food for granted. So one, one of the you know, trends that kind of gradually hit me was, you know, there's something to appreciating where your food's produced and how it's produced. And, and the, other, you know, the other part of my background is sort of technology and, and investment and finance. And um, you know, as around 20, 
2014, 2015, there was a number of platforms that started coming into being that enabled you to invest in, in real assets like uh, real estate. And I'm a big real estate bug too, and I've been a real estate investor for a long time. And I, I love just the me- mechanics of how it streamlined, basically made um, passive investing easy, um, easier than, than normal, where you're not necessarily putting the deals together, nor if you don't have the network of someone who is structuring a deal, you can go and you can sort of do your own shopping for real asset investments. So around uh, mid-2016, I just kind of had a, a flash of why don't I combine these two ideas of agriculture investments and funding platforms and you know their equity crowdfunding rules have continued to evolve to allow uh, greater access to these sort of offerings so we put together the platform so you talked about sort of not being oriented toward traditional row crops and instead sort of looking at uh, higher yielding specialty crops but you've also got some really unusual assets i think for a, for a, certainly a, for an ag crowdfunding platform you're offering crowdfunding opportunities for assets like timberland grass-fed livestock, as we talked about earlier, and uh, vertical farming or indoor farming and other ag tech initiatives. Can we sort of go through each of those subsectors and talk about the opportunities that you're seeing? Sure. Um, So we'll start with indoor farming. Uh, As I mentioned, there's a lot of money coming into this sector, a lot of institutional money. Got companies like Plenty, App Harvest that have done, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of, of capital from institutional capital they brought in. If you're an individual investor um, who want to diversify and, and um, you know, invest in this field, there's not as many opportunities. So we, we saw uh, sort of a niche play there that, that we get approached by these farmers from all over the country, whether it's doing a large scale greenhouse operation. We, we've been a part of the capital stack of a couple of those. One was like a $15 million project, and we were a small part of that one. Another was a, 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 it's still under development, a $50 million project, and we were a small part of that. Down to smaller vertical urban farms where people are taking, and I I really like this part being a real estate guy, people are, are taking um, old abandoned buildings that, you know, as we see this sort of retail apocalypse happening and a lot of uh, real estate being abandoned, and they're taking those buildings in there, turning them something productive for the neighborhood, producing jobs, producing locally grown healthy food. So that, that's, a, that's a sector we like. Elaborate a little bit on the um, grass-fed livestock. Another sector that's booming in the U.S., because consumers just want it. They, they like the taste. They like the fact that it's lower fat. They like the, the fact that the animals are humanely raised. And as I mentioned, uh, the, the prices they can get are a premium price. And so most of the grass-fed livestock that we consume here in the U.S. is imported from Australia or New Zealand. So there's a huge market opportunity there for U.S. producers who want to expand their operations. And we hear from those folks almost every day where they're able to come in and talk to us. And we provide sort of the flexible financing that they're not necessarily it via the conventional ag financing route. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but we've been told they just like that we're sort of creative and we're responsive and we're, we're doing things a little bit more nimble than um, you know the ag credit union down the road that their father and grandfather used. Is it a little more complicated to invest in livestock? I mean, I'm reminded of, you know, because I have, I have homesteader farmer ancestors and there are these, you know, terrible stories of how they mortgaged the cattle and then the cattle got a livestock disease and now it's like a, biblical misfortune, <laughs> like a yeah. prophetic misfortune has befallen the family. How does funding livestock work today? <laughs> yeah, I've got some of those pioneer um, ancestors with horror stories as well, too. So 
it's nice because you know most of the most of the producers we work with are pretty sophisticated both in the way they're producing the animals and raising the animals from the agronomy side and the husbandry side so we we see regenerative livestock and intensive grazing all these things are very good for the environment cattle gets a bad rap for many reasons there's a narrative that it's bad for the environment it's not in fact the opposite is true it's it's a very regenerative source of protein compared to the alternative protein sector but we're also working with sophisticated finance folks so you know one of our cattle producers used to be an investment banker in in new york and connecticut and moved down to north carolina runs cattle down in in the southeast u.s so those, those are the kind of uh, sponsors we like to work with, where they've got a team that's balanced between the farming side and the finance side, and, and that they can put together you know, sophisticated offerings where the risk is mitigated by any number of uh, measures, insurance, the collateralized, their high, high-end farming practices where they're using technology to manage, manage the herds and things like that. And what about timberland? Do you see for, you know forestry type assets as likely to become an increasingly popular asset class? I mean, that's been an area where I you know I don't know any real. I mean, outside of like a forestry REIT or something like that, not really opportunities for retail investors to gain exposure to to those sorts of properties. We've been trying to crack that code for a while, and we'll eventually get there. As as everybody knows, uh, timberland is one of those highly desirable asset classes from an institutional investment perspective. And pension funds and university endowments and things like that that invested in hundreds of thousands of acres of timberland. Uh, from the retail side, we're you know we, we hope that at some point we can find the right partner to work with to make investments that are favorable for real estate or retail investors. Whether it's just creative financing, working on different sorts of deals, who, who knows what that looks like? But we're working on it. Now, as we mentioned in the in the intro, Harvest Returns is a veteran and active duty service person founded and run company. First of all, my hat is off to you and to your partner, Austin Manis. So thank you very much for your service. Can you talk about how your service with the U.S. Navy um, either enhances or sort of meshes with your work with Harvest Returns and what unique skill sets you think active duty service people or veterans bring to entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple of different aspects to it. I think first is just the leadership side. I've been around a while. I'm, I'm sort of a late-blooming entrepreneur. So leading people, leading people virtually uh, is kind of secondhand to me. So that learning curve where you might have a 22, 25-year-old founder who's never led a team... I don't have that. So, you know, that that's easy and how to how to put together a high performance team and work on a high performance team. But I think probably more importantly for me and specifically to this company is is the risk management that I learned through the navies. So I I learned uh, you know, participated in a lot of dangerous operations throughout my Navy career, whether that's involving helicopter flight operations or live ordnance or combat operations or you know, people parachuting out of planes or any other number of Things where you really had to understand what the risks were and and look at all the measures you had in place to mitigate this. So, you know, being an entrepreneur and a startup is, you know, I guess I still call us a startup, but we're almost five years old. But being an entrepreneur is it's it's a risk management, it's a risk balancing act because you're always um, you know weighing decisions you need to make and and what the risk of winning or losing and and failing and you're going to fail at some level or another. Hopefully not. The whole company, but you're gonna you're gonna have failures and mitigating the, the losses for those risks. And the fact that we deal in investments, that, that's a whole other layer of, of risk management that that we have to deal with. You know, looking at every offering and making sure that the risks are properly mitigated, identified, and balanced. 
Can you talk about the kind of VC or other funding opportunities, investment opportunities that are out there specifically for military, uh, veteran, and active duty entrepreneurs? Do you think that there's a bias in the VC community, maybe in too much in favor of the 21-year-old wonderkin entrepreneur with no military experience? Or are there funds that are actually, you know, that appropriately value the experience that veterans bring to bear? There are some venture capitalists out there now that are starting to focus on military. There's Moonshots Capital and there's TFX Capital. And we've talked to a lot of these guys and, and there's others, uh, Veterans Venture Capital, you know, probably a few others I failed to mention. Bunker Labs is, is an organization and there's a number of, you know, for-profit and non-profit organizations that you know, either have been around for a while that are set up to help military entrepreneurs, whether it's either mentoring advice, accelerator programs, or in the case of, of some of the VCs, investments. And, and every single one I've looked at or worked with have been great and uh, could recommend them all. So who are your backers? And can you talk about who's on your advisory board or any institutional relationships that you have? Yeah. So um, Bootstrap Company, I was very fortunate to do well in the real estate field, liquidated some of my own assets, started the company. We had a couple angels come in, but you know we haven't taken big outside funding rounds like, like some of the other crowdfunding platforms or some of the other investment platforms have. And I, so we're a you know, privately owned company, and that gives me some agility and flexibility that maybe some of the other uh, companies don't have. That said, we do have a great advisory board. It's made up of some current and retired executives with, with tremendous backgrounds in agriculture, technology, military, utilities. So they keep us safe and um, you know give us give us guidance checks every every now and then when we have calls with them. Absolutely. So how many live accounts do you have on the platform right now? And what kind of growth are you seeing? Yeah. So we have at any given time we have two or three offerings. Uh, right now we I think we have two live offerings. We've got this opportunity zone that I can talk about that's uh, Sustainable Agriculture Opportunity Zone Fund that has been open for a while and will continue to be open. So that's that's a great one because it's one of the few Opportunity Zone funds that allow people to invest in agriculture tax advantage. And then we we generally have one or two other offerings. You have to access the platform to see. And you know, growth wise, this has been great. Uh, I think you mentioned based on some at, at the beginning of the talk that we were at five million dollars. That was back in June. Well, we've doubled that in in the past. Six, so we're we're at, sitting at about ten million dollars raised. Um, so people are really enjoying this sector. I think, or people are people like this sector. I think we're going to see a lot more growth, not just with us, but with with other you know agriculture investment platforms. It's it's a big space. You know, there's tens of billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars on the institutional side. So there's no reason that retail investors shouldn't be look at it as a, a potential uh, diversification tool for their portfolios. Can you say the number of investor accounts that you have on the platform? Yeah, we have, um, uh, I think we're at 6,000 registered investors of those, you know, some smaller portion have actually invested, but we've had many repeat investors. And um, I think, we, you know, we've had a couple exits on our offerings. So people are excited about that. Has COVID changed the, the farm investment landscape in terms of the types of properties or where in the supply chain people are interested in getting invested? Yeah, I, I mean the the two verticals we've been t- that I mentioned, uh, grass fed and indoor ag. It has had an impact on those two sectors, and you know we were in those sectors before COVID, but we're we're glad to see the traction picking up. On the grass fed side, most of the producers we work with are, are fairly are smaller. 
or they're growing. And so they use um, smaller processors. And so as many people probably know, during you know the initial COVID lockdowns, there were some outbreaks at some of the big meatpacking plants owned by Tyson and others. And those put a, you know, we saw some grocery store shelves empty of meat or, you know, some scarcity there. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One was, you know, because of those meat packing shutdowns, but also because of some hoarding behavior, but also because restaurants closed and or still closed. And so the, the processing plants had to adjust. But we, some of the processors we're, we're, or producers we're working with are selling direct to consumer via, you know, their website or third party website. So that's, you know, it's definitely COVID friendly. On the indoor ag side, same thing. 90-something percent of the leafy greens are produced in Salinas Valley, California that we consume all over the country. So growing lettuce in climates where lettuce wouldn't normally grow year-round and having three or four cycles of production or potentially more uh, versus one or two and having those uh, grown within 100 miles of the consumer instead of 2,000 miles of the consumer has made a big difference on what those supply chains look like and the resiliency of the supply chains in a post-COVID world. So as we move past COVID, so you mentioned, you know, growing things in climates where things wouldn't normally grow. (laughs) As we see sort of changing global demographics and where people live and and how climates are are changing. I mean, that's just a a fact. What do you think, what areas of of agriculture investment do you think are going to be most impactful in meeting food needs? Yeah, you know, we see a lot of the sustainability issues. So in, in both those investments, you know, that I talk about, already are are kind of fall into that category sustainability regenerative agriculture i just think greater diversification to meet uh, of the agriculture production system to meet consumer preferences so you know consumer diets are very fragmented now they didn't used to be 20 years ago people you know, whether it's just dieting themselves to be healthier to lose weight or or just preferences pescatarian you know people have a fish based diet where was that 20 years ago so, so we're aquaculture. That's one of the that's one of the fields we're looking at, and and we'll probably at some point have some additional offerings in. So, aquaculture, I think, is is a big trend um, going forward. When you look at what, you know, a couple of things, what fishing is doing to the oceans, it's depleting them, and having a, being a person who spent a lot of time in the oceans, I've seen it firsthand, sort of the um, pillaging of the oceans. And so, if we can grow food grow fish sustainably and other forms of marine protein sustainably indoors without sort of the harmful runoff that some of the other outdoor aquaculture operations have have had um, where they're doing some environmental damage. I think that's that's a space to look at. So when you look at, at, at aquaculture, what types of opportunities are those? Is it literally like indoor fish farms or are there other tech applications that are emerging that you can share with our listeners as to what, you know, what really does aquaculture entail? Yeah. So, so it's, you know, the thing with aquaculture is, is there's a lot of chemistry involved. You're basically trying to replicate the ocean with all of its currents and tides and space. And you're trying to do that in a very concentrated environment. So chemical balancing is very important. So automation and um, AI, things like that are going to, are going to have a bigger play in this, this sort of recirculating uh, indoor aquaculture operations. I imagine it's different than just growing lettuce indoors. Right? Yeah, because, you know, number one, you know, if your lettuce crop dies, it's fairly easy. And we've, you know, some of the hydroponic workers we've, we've worked with or farmers we've worked with, they have a crop that dies and so they just plant some more. And, you know, in a few weeks, they have another crop. With fish, it's a little different because you are talking with, you know, about an animal and that 
is consuming and producing waste and all that waste gets concentrated in, you know, there's chemical reactions that you have to balance and ammonia buildup and things like that in the tanks. And that all has to, you know, be very carefully filtered and monitored and, you know, the rate of growth of the fish. So there's a lot of science behind it. And so it's, it's certainly a high tech thing. And I think the more technology we see into that space, the more we're going to see the risk mitigated in that, those operations. Now, one trend that's sort of emerged in recent months or recent years has been these have been these partnerships between, let's say, ag tech agriculture firms and energy firms. I know this week Freight Farms announced, uh, you know, their vertical farming startup announced a partnership with Arcadia Energy, which is a renewable energy utility disruptor. Dominion Energy has an ongoing partnership with Smithfield Foods to turn waste from its hog farms into biogas. So there's this, there are these synergies that are emerging between ag tech and food or crop producers. Are you looking at any types of partnership opportunities like that for, your, for either the, the sponsors on your platform or maybe for your company as a whole? Yeah, um, strategic partnerships. We, we've had a couple of conversations with people in those fields. As far as offerings on a platform, we just finished doing a large greenhouse with a cogeneration feature, meaning they had a natural gas power plant on the site that is going to take, you know, produce electricity to help warm the greenhouse, the waste heat from the generation the in the greenhouse, and even the CO2 from that, the, that power that's being generated, being pumped into the greenhouse to accelerate the plant growth. So there are tons of synergies, as you said. Uh, we talked, there's some innovative folks out there that are combining solar, solar farms on the ground with livestock grazing because you've got to mow under the solar panels just to keep them from getting unkempt. So instead of mowing, why don't you have animals out there grazing? And then you kind of got a two-for-one sort of um, offering. So there's some people doing sheep and some people working to raise the solar panels to do cattle and things like that. So that's kind of an interesting field. Absolutely. So what's your farm outlook for 2021? You got any big plans in the year ahead? Yeah, we've got some things. We're working on some joint ventures I can't talk about yet, but uh, we, we're, we're looking at doing some uh, interesting investment products. We're always sort of looking for, you know, how can we make this, this asset class accessible to more people and help more farmers raise capital. And that, that's, that's just our, our two main goals in doing that in a sustainable and uh, way with integrity. So that's we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep raising money and helping farmers and stay farming and keeping investors happy. So how do people find you and how do they sign up? What do they, what do they have to do? Yeah, so pretty easy. HarvestReturns.com. Of course, we've got social media on all the major platforms, but uh, we have a lot of educational materials on our website, blog, and things like that for people that probably don't know about this asset class. And it's just, you register. The initial registration is as simple as uh, email, name and email and password. And then, you know, depending on what level you're going to invest, we're going to obviously ask for more information. And so we can adhere to compliance and things like that. Excellent. Well, for anyone interested in jumping into the world of ag tech, it's a very exciting space. A lot of change happening and a lot of a lot of impactful technologies emerging out of this space. Chris Raleigh from Harvest Returns, thank you for speaking with Investable Universe. You're welcome, Rebecca. Thanks. That's all we got for Investable Universe this week. If you liked what you heard, share the link, check out the site at investableuniverse.com or pitch us for future episodes. The address is editor at investableuniverse.com. My name is Rebecca Darst and you'll hear more from me next time.